Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 4 this morning. Romans chapter 4. Very happy to be back with you this week. Appreciate the prayers and the well wishes. Thankful that Andrew and Dale could step in last minute, like literally last minute. I went to bed Saturday thinking I'll be fine when I wake up Sunday, and I wasn't. So at 8 o'clock, you're making phone calls to uh, people, and I'm very thankful that those men were able to come. So we'll be here today then in Romans chapter 4. want to finish this chapter, and I'll read for uh, our passage today, verses 13 through 25. Romans 4, beginning at verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your mercies which are new every morning. And thank you for the reading of the word. And bless us now as it is the time to preach and proclaim the word. Fill me with your spirit. And grant to your people this morning eyes to see, ears to hear. Strengthen our faith. And turn our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious promises that we may rest in them. Thank you for the privilege of being back with the people of God. Thank you for the way you take care of your people each week, meet their needs. Pray for those who can't be with us this morning. I pray especially for Rick with his knee, giving him so much pain that you might be pleased to relieve that and bring him through this time of trial and make him to know your love. And for others in need, Lord, or traveling like Beth today, be with them, keep them safe, and thank you for the congregation of your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis 14, Abraham's nephew Lot is taken captive by some rival kings. 
You know, from the story of Abraham and Lot, how they divide the land, and Lot ends up living very near to Sodom and Gomorrah, eventually living in that city. Well, there are several kings that rule over those various cities, including Sodom and Gomorrah. They were almost like city-states, each city having its own king. And eventually, some of those kings unite and rebel against the other kings that have held power in the area for several years. And in the midst of that civil war, Lot is taken captive. And in response, Abraham gathers 318 trained men from his household and goes in pursuit of Lot. He attacks the forces that seized Lot, and he retrieves his relative and Lot's possessions and the women and other people that were captured in this war. And in fact, Abraham doesn't stop there. He and his forces end up defeating the entire alliance of kings. Abraham ends the war. Well, such an effort deserves a reward. And when Abraham returns from this battle, the king of Sodom greets him and offers him all of the goods that Abraham recovered. You keep the spoils of war, he says. But Abraham refuses. He insists he's made a vow to the Lord that he won't be enriched by these kings. So he will only accept the food he already ate, the reward for the men that went with him, and just his family. In other words, those who are with me, they they can have a reward, but I will not accept one for myself. Well, how then will Abraham be rewarded for this valiant effort, for his faith, for his courage? Well, The next chapter in Genesis begins, and we find God making this statement. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And God then promises Abraham, you will have a son, and his descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. And that's the chapter that contains the now frequently cited phrase in Romans, Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's reward, it came from God. And he obtained that reward not by his effort, but by his faith. And so as we continue our study in Romans 4 this week, as we continue to look at the story of Abraham, as Paul tells it, we should consider what are the rewards that come to those who have faith? We saw it a few weeks ago when we started this chapter. Paul sets up Abraham as the textbook example of a person who is justified by faith. And many Jews in Paul's day, they're telling Abraham's story as a model of obedience. One whose faithfulness obtained God's promises. But Paul has turned that story on its head. He shows and he appeals to the order of events in Genesis. He says, no, it's Abraham's faith that obtained righteousness. A faith he exercised before he was circumcised, before God gave Israel the law. And that discussion then continues in the passage today. Paul wants to continue to drive home this idea of the priority of faith. But not only that, Paul will also take a moment to focus on the quality of Abraham's faith. On how God strengthened Abraham's faith when he faced the impossible. 
when he faced apparently hopeless situations. And so our passage today, it's a wonderful blend. Not only does Paul one more time sound the theme, the righteous by faith will live, but he also shows us how the righteous walk by faith and not by sight. So let's consider this morning how God rewards and strengthens our faith. And we'll look at it under those two headings. First, how God rewards your faith. Verse 13 restates the main principle that Paul has been advancing in this chapter. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. I love what Paul is doing with the Old Testament here. He's reading the story, but everybody's reading the same Old Testament. What lens are they putting on the Old Testament to make the most sense of it? Rather than leading it or reading it through the lens of obedience, Paul reads the story through the lens of faith. It is faith that brings righteousness to the believing sinner. And that's how we should read our story as well. And then in verses 14 and 15, Paul gives us two reasons why we should prioritize faith. Why his reading of the Old Testament is the right reading. And here Paul gives us some new information. We didn't see this in the last sermon. So first, as verse 14 says, If those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. It's a simple principle. If people obtain God's blessings by working for them, well, why does the Bible speak of faith at all? Why does God make promises. I mean, what is faith other than trusting the promises of God? Relying on God to accomplish things rather than our own performance. And when it comes to obtaining God's promises, starting with salvation, but the whole life that you live, when it comes to obtaining God's promises as grace, faith and works, they're mutually exclusive. They can't live in the same room when it comes to the grounds by which we relate to God. And then in verse 15, secondly, Paul writes, because the law brings wrath. Then where there is no law, there is no transgression. And again, Paul, here's what he's going to do here. There's an idea that's always under the surface when Paul writes Romans. And sometimes it peeks its head up through to be obvious. It happens here in this passage. Paul hints at this idea that the law can't save. Why? Because no one is able to keep the law. That's why the law hasn't brought blessing. It's only brought wrath. I mean, just read Israel's story. It's a frequent experience of wrath. Wrath being poured out on those who disobey the covenant. And so the law, excuse me, the inheritance of the covenant, the blessings that God promised to Abraham, they can't come by means of the law. Because if they do, there will never be any heirs. The promises of God will not come true because no one can keep the terms of the covenant on their own. It must be by faith. And just before we move on, by the way, what about this statement at the end of verse 15? Where there is no law, 
there is no transgression. Is Paul implying that there are people who are not guilty of sin because they do not possess God's law? Well, that doesn't fit well with what Paul writes in chapter 2, where he talks about human conscience and how everyone will give an account for their deeds on the last day, including those whose consciences accuse or defend them. Everyone has access to some kind of law. Rather, I think Paul is anticipating an idea that he'll develop in more detail in chapters 5 and 7, and it's this idea. Everyone is enslaved to the power of sin. Everyone, every human. And the coming of the law tends only to aggravate that sin. It just sharpens the focus on a person's transgressions. So rather than the law being the means of salvation, it only leads to further condemnation. Why? Because of sin's power. So God's wrath, it's revealed against everyone. But rather than the law being the solution as it comes to some, well, it just makes those people even more accountable and under God's wrath. So Paul's point being, instead of looking to your works, instead of looking to your obedience to justify you, you need to exercise faith. You need to put your faith in the promises of God. And that will bring the rewards that God promises to his people. And what are some of those rewards? Well, notice again verse 13. Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. Now, hold on. Wait a minute. I thought God promised Abraham the land of Palestine. Well, he did. But looking back, one more time, here's Paul reading the whole Old Testament and putting a particular lens on it. He recognizes that the land of Palestine was pointing to the reality of a new creation. That Palestine would actually be a partial restoration of Eden. Now, not perfect, not complete by any stretch of the imagination. But when you think of the curse given to Adam, the thorns and the thistles, they're going to fight against you. What's one of the things the promised land is known for? Flowing with milk and honey. Grape clusters so big, two men have to carry them on a stick. It's a partial restoration of the good life God's people once enjoyed before Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of his presence. In the promised land, they'll worship God as he has revealed himself in the tabernacle and the temple, and they'll enjoy his glorious presence with them. Even at times when you read in the Old Testament, you know, the Spirit of God breaking out in the camp and anointing people for service. We're going to start to enjoy the new life that God is bringing to his creation which has been ruined through sin. And Paul just sees when when God makes promises like that, there's only one place it can terminate. In God's undoing of all the damage caused by sin. And so you, when you place your faith in Christ, you become a part of that new creation. It starts right here in your heart. When God breaks sin's power over you, 
And then God, by his grace, brings you into a new family, a new family identity, the people of God, the children of Abraham. You experience God's presence because the spirit of God starts to live inside of you. And that spirit empowers you to serve God and enables you wherever you are, wherever God calls you, to be an agent to advance his new creation. Faith has many rewards. Let's look at just a few more of them. In verse 16, Paul says, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. And two things stand out here. First, salvation by faith preserves the reality of grace. Did you notice that phrase? The promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. And just notice, Paul just assumes the primacy of grace. It's a non-negotiable truth. Grace is the river that flows through the whole Bible. And everything needs to be put into its proper place so that it may flow down that river. The promise must be by faith, Paul says. Otherwise, it wouldn't be by grace. That is the realm in which you as a believer exist. That's the water you swim in. That is the reality you inhabit. And there's a lot of things that would compete for your allegiance when it comes to what shapes your thinking. The news you hear, the radio we listen to, the messages that come through, and advertising and other forms of entertainment. There's all sorts of waters that you could swim in. But the Bible is calling you to swim in this river of grace. That that is what life with God is all about. Not works, not condemnation, not performance, not your past, not what your family expects of you, not what your friends expect of you, not what you think you are obligated to give to others. You are under the power of grace. And second, then, Paul reminds us, or he makes this statement in verse 16, he is the father of us all. If you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, you are part of a worldwide family of faith. You are an heir of Abraham. You are part of God's covenant people. And and the best blessing of all, as Jesus says in Matthew 12, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother to be part of the family of God by faith. And so lastly on this idea, Paul writes in verse 17, developing this idea that we are Abraham's children. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. What does it mean to belong to the people of God by faith? It means you serve a God who calls into being 
things that don't exist. And I want you to think of the infinite possibilities that opens up for your life if you follow Christ by faith. When God made the world, he fashioned it out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. And when God promised to give Abraham a son, Sarah could not conceive children. And God would repeat this promise to Abraham when he was almost 100, long past childbearing age. How did she have a son? Because God created a life where there was no life. And now in your heart, God has created life. Where at one time, there was no life. He has called you his people, even though at one time you were not his people. And I just want you to think about your life, however much life is in front of you, that you serve a God of infinite possibility who makes promises and fulfills those promises in your life. So if you're here today, let me say this. Maybe you're listening online. Maybe you're not a Christian. I would just plead with you. Embrace the beauty of this life. Embrace the reward of the life of faith. Maybe some of these things sound impossible. The dead don't rise. The Bible can't be God's word. How can Jesus and God be one person? How can the church be the community of God's people? Well, with humans, these things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And if you're a Christian, then I just say, I ask this question, is your whole outlook on life controlled by faith? I mean, is that the lens that that shapes how you walk through life every day? Abraham's life, it was one long journey of faith. Sometimes that faith needed to be refreshed. Sometimes it needed to be strengthened. But he went from one location to the next, from one trial to the next, at times from one disappointment to the next, by faith in the promises of God. So those are the rewards. And that brings me then to the second idea how God strengthens your faith. Because maybe those ideas sound really good, but we know how we stumble and fall. Well, in the rest of the passage, Paul gives us instruction on how to take comfort in God. Here there is a focus on the content, on the quality of Abraham's faith. Paul writes in verses 18 and 19, Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be, without weakening in his faith. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. So as we've touched on already, but, but just to lay out all the steps, when God first promises to give Abraham a son, Abraham's about 76 years old. Ten years later, that promise has not come true. And so Abraham complies with Sarah's plot to have a child by means of Hagar. And as we know, that was a total disaster. So God again comes to Abraham, or Abram, and he reiterates the promise. Abram will have a son, but this time, Abram is 99 years old. Sarah is 90, well past their child-bearing years. And that's why both of them laugh when God promises them a son. One author writes, Abraham had every reason 
from a human point of view, to give up the attempt to produce a child through Sarah. His circumstances offered him no hope. That is why verse 18 reads, against all hope. Abraham, in hope, believed. Their hopes have been disappointed so many times. But in the place of previous hope, Abraham kept putting more hope. And maybe at this point you're wondering, well, hold on, how does Paul speak so positively of Abraham's faith? I mean, Genesis records that Abraham laughed at God's promises, that he fathered a child through Hagar. I mean, is Paul just trying to smooth out this messy narrative so he can sell his point? No, Paul can write this way because of what he said back in verse 16. The promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. The principle of grace means this, that faith saves even when faith is imperfect. So we may stumble and fail. We all do. But those who walk by faith are accepted by God because of the perfection of Christ. So yes, Abraham stumbled and was weak, but he believed. And so Paul puts on the lens of grace and says, if he trusted God, then the end result is he believed and he was justified. And so what gave Abraham's faith its ability? What, what, what made Abraham's faith take, so to speak? And what will strengthen your faith in the face of discouragement? The promises of God. Person of Christ and the promises of God. Notice again that flow of verse 18. He became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. You see, in the face of dashed hopes, God made him a promise, and Abraham believed it. So also verses 20 and 21. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that what God had power to do, or that God had power to do what he had promised. So what persuaded Abraham, what strengthened his faith, the power and promises of God. And does that mean then that Abraham ignored his reality? Does that mean that Abraham just pretended his circumstances didn't exist? He just closed his eyes and said, I'll jump, God. You make the net appear. No. Verse 19 declares, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Abraham wasn't hoodwinked. He was in full possession of the facts. But there was a reality that was greater than what his eyes could see. And that reality was the promises of God. Those promises gave him a reality to trust in and a sojourn to that was greater than what he could see. John Calvin writes, Let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just 
we are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us. Outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? We must pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. Abraham's faith in God's promises, that strengthened his faith. Even as he was tested and even as he stumbled, his faith grew strong. Again, one author asks, In what way did Abraham's faith grow strong? In the sense that anything gains strength when it meets and overcomes opposition. Muscles when weights are raised. Holiness when temptation is successfully resisted. So Abraham's faith gained strength from its victory over the hindrance created by the conflict between God's promise and the physical evidence. You see, friend, your faith will be tested. As you journey through life, and you're going to think, well, some of you are going to think, ah, the testing, that's a sign that I'm a failure. That's a sign that I don't have faith. No, that is God's means of making you strong. That is God's way of strengthening your faith. This is not sent to crush you. The trial is not sent to be the end of you. No, it is sent to strengthen you. And even Paul, though this is definitely written with the, with the lens of faith, he says our light, momentary afflictions work in us an eternal way of glory. So the best thing that you can do, friends, the best counsel God's word can give you is to nourish your faith with the promises of God. Hear them here as you are today in the public worship. Read them in the holy word. Plead them in the place of prayer. Read deeply, read widely to better understand the Christian faith. Listen to other Christians rehearse how God has been faithful to them. Because no longer how long, no matter how long you walk with God, we never outgrow faith. We never outgrow the need to have our faith strengthened. And so Paul brings his conclusion right back to where he started in the closing verses. He kind of went down this path of Abraham's faith. So he brings it back to his main theme here in verses 23 to 25. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Because in the end, where do all those promises of God concentrate? On the death of Jesus Christ for our sin and the resurrection which secures justification. So you, friend, point your eyes spiritually Direct your faith to him. And you will be right with God by faith and so live. And you will be able to live to walk by faith and not by sight. Let's give thanks to God for that and ask for his help. Father in heaven, we do come before you with reverence and with stillness having considered your great grace. Who are we to be heirs 
of these promises. Who are we to come so boldly before your throne? We can do so only because of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for us. So thank you, Lord, for his sacrifice and forgive us of our sins that placed him there. And now we come into your presence and we ask once more, we thank you for your grace and we ask for you to strengthen our faith. And I pray for us as the people of God, whether as individuals, whether as a a church, what are you calling us to do? How is faith asking us to follow you more? How can we trust you? How can we find comfort in your promises? How can we obey you more? How can we love and serve the risen Christ? Lord, show us these things in your word and give us faith to believe them and to follow. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's conclude then.